Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Hal Hickel, Academy Award-winning animation supervisor at ILM. We talk about his work on the prequels, as well as some of the groundbreaking effects of Rogue One, including Tarkin, Leia, and K2SO. This is Talking Bay 94, Episode 15, Hal Hickel. Welcome to another episode of Talking Bay 94. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I am joined by Mr. Hal Hickel. Mr. Hickel, thank you so much for, for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So what I would love to talk about before we kind of get into Star Wars and your involvement there is is first your inspirations growing up, whether it's movies or the people that worked on movies. What inspired you to kind of go into this line of, of visual effects and animation? You know, a lot of this stuff you'll hear a lot of visual effects people talk about. Although for me, the first inspiration for me was the original King Kong, which I saw on TV. I didn't see it when it came out. That was 1933. (laughs) I'm not that old. But uh, in the probably early 70s, I saw it on TV and uh, was utterly fascinated with the film and found some books about uh, how the effects were done. And that got me interested in stop motion animation. And so I was already messing around with that and learning what I could about special effects when, uh, by the time Star Wars came out in 77, and then that really kind of sealed the deal. Up, up to that point, I had kind of twin interest in visual effects and, and being an astronaut. I was kind of a NASA nerd, but Star Wars really kind of sealed it. I was like, yeah, that's what I want to do for a living. And I started devouring every magazine article I could find. This was before Cinefix and certainly way before the internet. So, you know, you would just hunt around in libraries for books on visual effects. And there was a magazine called Starlog. And then it had a it had a sister publication called Cinemagic that was really aimed at kind of amateur backyard filmmakers. And so that was great. That was a great resource. And, and then after that, it was, you know, Actually, the the end of the 70s and the beginning of the 80s were a great kind of watershed moment for um, awesome visual effects films because the same year Star Wars came out, we had Close Encounters, and then shortly after there was uh, Alien and, you know, Tron in 82, I think, and Empire Strikes Back. You know, there was just like film after film with great visual effects, and so I just would devour all those uh, as quickly as they came out. Um, Blade Runner was a big influence, uh, huge, actually, and... Um, what else? I, I think, you know, the kind of stuff you'd sort of expect somebody my age to <laughs> to have been into. But King Kong was where, where it started. King Kong was where it started. So with Star Wars coming out, I know that that you just mentioned is a huge influence on you. But you even you took it a step further. This is kind of infamous now, and I'm sure you've talked about it a lot. But your, your Lucasfilm letter that's actually framed in your office, uh, kind of <laughs> what was that like? And then even getting a response, I'm sure then was was incredible as it would be even now. At that time, uh, when Star Wars came out, I was uh, 13 or 14, I think 13, when it, when it actually hit theaters. And I was living in a tiny little town in Colorado, so we didn't have any, you know, I didn't have any family members, distant or otherwise, who worked in the film industry, so it didn't seem very real. But uh, sometime later that summer in the fall, I don't know when they announced it, but, you know, it was in the news that they were going to make a sequel. So I thought I had some pretty good ideas about what it should be about, and I wrote them up. And I also included, of course, my desire to, to come and work on them in any capacity, like, you know, emptying garbage, whatever. And I sent off the letter, I guess, I, somehow or other, I, I tracked down the, the, the Lucasfilm offices because I, I don't think I sent it to the fan club, although maybe I had maybe I had done. I don't, I don't remember where I sent it, but, but I got a response and it was it was kind of the response you'd expect. It was it was um, partly sort of formal, you know, them saying the usual thing, which at the time I didn't understand, but of course now I do, of, you know, film companies don't really accept outside submissions for story ideas because otherwise that's when they get sued a few years later, you know, so they, they're like, we haven't read your idea, we're returning it to you. But then they went on to say, getting into movies takes a combination of talent and luck, etc. And, and it was it was nice. I mean, of course, part of me was crushed, but I was also super excited because it was on this really cool Ralph McQuarrie letterhead. And, right. and what I didn't, what took me a while to, to, to see as cool, but ultimately later I really kind of cherished it, was that the letter had actually been typed by um, Gary Kurtz's uh, secretary. Gary Kurtz was the producer of Star Wars. Right. Um, and yeah. Bunny also, his, his, his assistant, actually typed the letter herself and sent it to me. And that, later I was like, wow, I mean, come on, they must have gotten billions of letters from fans by that point. There was, the message mm-hmm. has been pouring in. You know, how on earth did she have the time to 
to type this letter. And I actually have had contact with her in the last 10 years or so. And she's very sweet. And, and I told her the story and it really tickled her. And I asked her about it. I said, you know, what, what's the deal? How, what, why on earth would you have the time to reply? And she said that there was a brief window of time before they all went off to England to begin shooting Empire, where she was still, she took it upon herself to answer many of the fan letters as she could because she really enjoyed doing it um, and then once they shipped off the, she couldn't do it anymore and from that point on it was it was pretty much handled by you know other people at Lucasfilm who ran the, the fan club so mm-hmm. um, so I thought that was very sweet years later you know I did end up working at ILM and we had wrapped work on Phantom Menace and we had a big wrap breakfast uh, for the crew and George was there and you know ordinarily when George is there at ILM it's for work and everybody treats it that way but this was kind of a celebration and a few folks started to bring up little things like either posters from the film or other things for him to sign and he was super gracious so a little line formed and I was talking to Rob Coleman who was the animation supervisor on all three of the prequels and Rob said oh you gotta go to that letter and bring it up he'll, he'll get a kick <laughs> out so I got it and I, I gave it to him and so he read it and he chuckled and he underlined uh, talent and luck and wrote you have it and signed it and so that was that kind of closed the circle on that <laughs> that's the dream that's the dream right there right that story is pretty much every star wars fan's dream and you're you're living it so that's so funny it was it was yeah it was really really awesome for me <laughs> I, I won't lie with the inspiration of the, of the movies that you loved and the people that made them you you found yourself at, at pixar what was kind of that process getting there like and and what inspired you to then become an animator and and work in the visual effects like that in 82 i went to the california institute of the arts and at that time i was super interested in visual effects particularly in um, animated effects so so taking star wars as an example one thing that really really inspired me in star wars was the animation that adam beckett had done when the jawa zap r2d2 and all those little blue electrical arcs crawl all over him i just thought that was super cool and i wanted to know how that was done and then also things like the corridor of light at the end of uh, 2001 the slit scan effect and Mm -hmm. so and so when, when I went to CalArts, those were things I, was, I wanted to sort of learn there. And so after I left CalArts, I went to work doing stuff like that, but on a much smaller scale at a little shop up in Portland, Oregon, where, uh, where I was living, where I had gone to high school. Um, and so I'd gone back up to Portland, and I worked at a little shop doing that kind of work for a while. And then I had a friend who was working at Will Vinton Studios, and Will Vinton Studios was known for doing clay animation. Um, and they were blowing up at the time because they had done these... Uh, commercials for the California Raisins, which became this kind of mid-80s cultural thing, bubble. And he was a buddy of mine, and he said, you know, oh, you should come and work over here. We're doing cool stuff, and, and it's really taking off, and they're hiring animators, and you used to do stop motion when you were a kid. You should do it. So I I got hired on it at Vinton's, and so I was working at Vinton's for about six and a half years, but my goal was still, ultimately, hopefully, to work at ILM. And so all the, all the work I'd done prior to Vinton's was commercial work, and the work we were doing at Vinton's was mostly commercial work, but it wasn't movie visual effects stuff. So that, you know, I was just kind of using it as a, as a, a way to get to where I wanted to be. But during, but I ended up being in Vinton's, and Vinton's, by the way, now is called Leica. So they, they did Kubo. And oh, the, yeah. The two things. yeah. They, they kind of morphed into that um, a decade or more ago. Um, but anyways, they, you know, I was working in stop motion and, and my goal was to end up still at ILM doing something like the Ebersisk in Willow, you know, the two-headed dragon or, or maybe working for Phil Tippett over at his shop in East Bay on, you know, something like the stop motion stuff they'd done for RoboCop, etc. But then um, Jurassic Park came out and, and I could <laughs> see the writing on the wall that, that stop motion animation was not going to be, uh, it was going to going to continue on as a viable technique for animated films, but not not for doing Ray Harryhausen-style realistic creatures for live-action movies. That just was not going to be the technique anymore. So I didn't really know what I was kind of concerned. I kind of thought computer animation was was sort of killing my career. <laughs> but I started reading what I could about it and kind of learning just at a very high level, not, not deep. You know, I knew I wasn't going to be a coder, somebody who wrote software, and I knew... At that point, I really didn't think it was realistic for me to go back to college and get like a computer science degree, which is kind of what I pictured all these computer graphics people being as like people in lab coats with <laughs> computer science degrees, which some of them were, um, <laughs> minus the lab coat. But then um, Pixar, what I didn't know at that time was Pixar was um, deep into Toy Story. They were mm-hmm. struggling to get it done. They kind of got hit a bottleneck. They needed more people. And some of the people they'd hired in the Bay Area were former stop motion people who had either worked at uh, Skellington or they had worked at uh, this company called Bump, uh, that, what was it called? Uh, they made a TV show called Bump in the Night. I can't remember the name of the company. 
they were both local stop motion companies in the Bay Area. And then there had also been Colossal Films, which is a production house there. So they'd hired some of those people. And the one guy there, Mike Belzer, kind of put out feelers. He sent letters and made phone calls to different stop motion people he knew in the industry to see if they were interested in coming over to Pixar um, to work on Toy Story. Now, I didn't know Mike, but he contacted Somebody at Vinton's, uh, Sheila, um, Teresa Drilling, who's a terrific stop-motion animator, and she had zero interest in CG. In fact, she still doesn't have any interest in it. She's still a very talented uh, animation director and stop-motion animator uh, working in that field. But she knew that I had my eye on it and, and still really wanted to kind of move forward and get into CG and, and ultimately uh, visual effects. So she told me about it, and so I sent a demo reel to Pixar that – uh, you know, I could never get hired with today, <laughs> but they were pretty desperate. They were pretty desperate. And and the thing is, they didn't care if you knew anything about computers because their software at that point was artist, fairly artist friendly for the time. And they just wanted animators who understood the fundamentals of character animation. You know, that because teaching someone to use their software was a lot easier than teaching somebody with no animation experience to be an animator. And so uh, I had you know, by that point, amassed at least enough character animation on my, my reel from working at Vinton's to get hired. And, and I worked, I was an animator during the last six months of Toy Story, but I think we animated around half the movie in that time. And it was a great experience. It was awesome. Uh, it was just a, wow. a brilliant, brilliant time to be at the company. It was still tiny. You know, it, it just there were so many great people there to learn from. Andrew Stanton and Pete Doctor and Ash Brandon and then Doug Sweetland. It was just it was just uh, Mark off the off it all. It was a great crew of super talented people. I, I think I learned more about animation in my year and a half at Pixar than probably any any other single time in in my career. Um, but so then that that wrapped and we were working on little bits and pieces. And there was going to be quite a gap before Bugs Life started up. And I, mm-hmm. I still really wanted to do the Ray Harryhausen thing more than um, the Walt Disney thing, if you will. That, that is to say, live action visual effects more than animated features. So it was a tough decision because Pixar was an awesome place to be. But I sent a reel over to ILM and, and uh, got hired there. <laughs> so what did you uh, work on on Toy Story? Did you have any specific characters that you kind of focused on? Or, or was there kind of more of a general like complete the shot mentality? It was kind of a grab bag of things. When I started, it was just sort of like, okay, here's a cluster of shots. Uh, they had At that point, they had just added the whole beginning song montage of Andy playing in his bedroom. That, that, that was new. So I got handed, I don't know, four or five of those shots where Andy's, you know, setting up his western town and running around and with Woody and stuff. Um, I think that's where I started. Although, actually, the very first shot I animated was the sh- shot where... Um, it's on Potato Head. It's actually early in the film. It's on Potato Head. And he turns around and he's rearranged his face to look like a Picasso painting. He says, "Hey, look, I'm Picasso." And Ham says, oh, "Get it." And walks off and and um, and Potato Head says, "You hockey puck." And then he, he walks off and there's an actual hockey puck toy mm-hmm. sitting there. It's kind of shrugged. Um, so that was the first shot I did. And then after that, again, it was kind of a grab bag of stuff. Um, I did get to. I actually asked if I could work on some of the mutant toys and Sid's bedroom because i thought they were cool so as soon as those scenes were ready i got um some of those shots with mutant toys the spider baby and some of the other ones yeah. um and that was fun and then a little bit of the chase stuff i think kind of rounded it out for me some of the stuff of woody running after the, the truck and chasing the strap and so it was great it was a good grab bag it was pro- probably only i think fewer than 40 shots that i animated but um but boy i just i loved it it was great and the funny thing was that you know this thing that i thought was destroying my career uh, once I got there and learned the software and was animating in the computer, I found that I really liked it. I really it made yeah. more sense to me. I mean, I love and still love cameras and sets and puppets and everything about stop motion, the tactileness of it. But as a as a way to animate a character, stop motion, I mean, uh, computer animation just worked better with my brain. And and you know, I talked to some of the folks who were at the time who had also come over from stop motion, and some of them felt like I did. They were like, yeah, this is awesome. Some of them were kind of in the middle. They were like, well, it's it's fine, I guess, but I can't wait to get back to stop motion. And then there were some people who just were like, I hate this. It's Somebody famously said, I forget, it might have been Anthony Scott, although he wasn't there. He came along later. But it was some really great stop motion animator from the Bay Area who worked for a time at Pixar who said that to them, it might have been Tim Hiddle, they said it was like animating with boxing gloves on. <laughs> That's how they felt about animating with a computer. But for me, it was it was great. I was And, and I think... I took to it quickly because I was excited about it. You know, I wasn't doing it grudgingly. It was like, no, I want to learn this thing so I can continue on with my career and, and maybe hopefully still go to ILM and be useful 
people there as an animator, and, and, and that's what happened. But um, but it was you know it, it, it certainly wasn't something I particularly after after Jurassic Park came out. It was certainly not the thing I was envisioning for my future. So it was a nice surprise. So with that move to ILM, I mean, you just mentioned Jurassic Park. One of your early projects was Lost World. What was kind of it like then moving to ILM and starting to work on more of the visual effects side of live action movies? Uh, it was super, super exciting. I mean, you know, I'd been following ILM since the first Star Wars. So for years and years, I'd read every Cinefix article and I knew all the all the names of all the people there. And yeah. I had met Dennis Murin a few years before, actually before Jurassic came out. So I met him probably around 91, maybe, because he came and he came to a, a conference in Portland that, that my boss, Will Vinton, was one of the people who put on the conference. And so I, I bugged Will and said, could you please introduce me to Dennis? Um, so we did, and, and I had a nice chat with Dennis. And in fact, I ended up giving Dennis and his wife and his son a tour of, of Vinton's because Dennis had come from a stop motion background. And he wanted to see the, the studio, so I gave him a tour. Anyway, so we had stayed in touch, and he'd been urging me for a while to come over, but I actually didn't didn't feel ready. But then when I um, finished my stint at Pixar, but we had been there a while, and the movie had fit, Toy Story had wrapped, and I had Toy Story shots on my reel, and I finally felt ready, so I, I sent over a tape and, and got hired. And so I was just super excited. I was really excited to just be a part of that company that had been following for so long. Plus, it had already been announced, I think, at that point that, that you know George was going to be making more Star Wars films, which was amazing to me. It took, like The timing was insane. It was like, wow, they're going to make a second Jurassic Park, and there's going to be new Star Wars movies. I can't wait. And so uh, I was just, it was super exciting. And they they had different software, which had different capabilities. It wasn't better than than Pixar's. Because Pixar's was, was homebrewed, but it was different. So I had to kind of retrain a bit, which was good, um, you know, learn, learn some new things. And then the whole aspect of these characters being put into live action footage, um, there's just a whole bunch of things that go along with that that aren't part of the process of making an all CG animated film. And so, and that was exciting because it was new, but it was also exciting to me because it went all the way back to my very first interest in, in visual effects, which was King Kong, where, you know, you're doing puppet animation, but you're combining it with live action backgrounds to make it look like it's sitting in a live action movie. And of course, all of Ray Harryhausen's films. I don't think I even mentioned Ray earlier when you asked me for inspirations, but of course, after King Kong, the first King Kong, then of course I devoured all of Ray's films, like everyone in visual effects, you know, he's our, our great grandfather. So that aspect of it was super exciting to me. It's like, finally I get to, you know, get to animate characters that are going to go into a live scene and look, there are the actors pretending to look at the character, you know, just like I can imagine raging it, you know, with, with the Cyclops or the dragon in, in the seventh voyage or whatever. So, so, so that was all, I was just super excited. And it was interesting too, because uh, so I met Dennis around 91, and then at some point, oh, I know, it was the summer of 92, I think, when they were still in the middle of doing Jurassic Park. Uh, he had kindly offered, you know, look, if you're ever in the Bay Area, come come by, you know, I'll give you a look around ILM. So I was passing through. I had a friend who was getting married in Santa Barbara, and I was driving down from Portland. So I, I called up Dennis and, and set up a time and, and went. And so that was my first time visiting ILM. And that, again, that was around 92. And at that time... A bunch of the equipment that was, you know, the, 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 the way visual effects were done all through the late 70s and all through the 80s was still there. So they had their big camera for shooting matte paintings. They had a lot of their um, uh, what we call down shooters or oxberries, these, these sort of cameras on, a, on rails that point down at artwork that you're shooting on a bed um, and a bunch of other stuff like optical printers, all this stuff. Four years later when I came back or five years, no, four years later when I came back as an employee in 96, all that stuff was gone. There were still some optical printers because there were still a few things that they were needed for, but the mat camera, the down shooters, all that stuff was gone. And it was, all those rooms were full of people at computer desks. So that transformation of, which would ultimately sweep over the whole industry, had it all happened basically in that four years between when I first visited and when I came to work there, which is kind of, kind of crazy. Moving to the the prequel trilogy, you you got your chance. You started to work on, on Star Wars. What was that like? And I guess we'll start with Phantom Menace. What was your involvement with uh, episode one? Uh, Lost World, my first project there, I was, I was an animator. And then on Phantom Menace, I was an animator. Then then Rob put me in charge of a couple of characters making me a lead animator, which ended up being my mm-hmm. my role or my credit on, on Phantom Menace. And so I was, uh, I was in charge of Boss Nass and... 
And then also the, the droidic has the, the destroyer droid, the rolling ball droids. Uh-huh. And so those were two things. And then along the way, I animated um, a fair number of shots of Watto. Uh, Linda Bell was the mm-hmm. on, on that character, and uh, but I animated some of the Watto shots. Oh, and I did animated some cycles of some of the creatures in the stampede. And cycles meaning a, a sort of a, a repeating uh, cycle of, of animation of, of a creature running or walking. And so we needed... It's a stampede, so we needed the Falumpa sets running and the uh, what were some of the other ones called? Maybe two or three of those. I did uh, so I did some of those, but the main the things that took most of my time on Phantom Menace were Boss Nass and the and the destroyer droids working out a walk cycle for the destroyer droids and the unfolding and, and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, it was great. It was it was totally exciting. There was some point early on, maybe before we even really got started animating, when they took a group of us. Uh, up to Skywalker to show us what, you know, like the designs and stuff. And Doug Chang gave us a little spiel and showed us a bunch of the maquettes and the artwork and everything. And I was just over the moon. I was so excited. And and so, yeah, it was great. And then, of course, you know, you start to see George around. And for somebody like me, it's just, you know, and probably I think most people at ILM had a similar background. So, but, you know, it's hard to kind of right. remain cool. The first time you're like, <laughs> like in a meeting with George or a review or something, um, it was right. tough. I managed, I think I managed it. I mean, I, I don't remember blurting out anything idiotic, but you know, it's just, it's mind blowing. You're like, you're this thing you've been kind of spent part of your psyche since you were a kid. Um, it's suddenly real. It's, uh, it's, it's, it was crazy, but it was great, great fun. And Rob Coleman, I can't sing that guy's praises enough. He was the, the Anim soup on, on all three of the prequels and he and I got, got to be really good friends and and he gave me some really good opportunities with different characters uh, that he assigned me and um, he made uh, me and, um, and Chris Armstrong kind of under soups on uh, episode two um, so we had sequences of our own to supervise and um, and, that, and that was really awesome so he gave me a lot of good opportunities and he taught me a lot, a lot about managing crews and critiquing work and talking to directors and presenting work to directors and a lot of stuff that's hard to come by when when you want to be an animation supervisor, you you know you kind of that's kind of your goal, which was my goal at ILM. I really wanted to to reach that kind of station, and and Rob was was really helpful with that. So with Attack of the Clones, uh, moving into Episode Two, were there any sequences or characters that you really loved to animate, or any of the the actual scenes that you're the most proud of? Well, um, one of the things I forgot to mention in Phantom Menace that was kind of interesting to do was right at the end of the movie, just as things were really ramping down and we were just about done, they need a couple of shots of Yoda that they couldn't do with the um, puppet. And we had mm-hmm. created a, a kind of not very detailed um, CG version of Yoda for really distant shots and things. It was like sort of like a stunt double, double version of mm-hmm. but in CG. And so we used that for one of the shots. So I animated the first... CG shot of Yoda, and it's a shot of him. He's talking to um, Obi-Wan, and he's walking across the room. It's sort of, sort of a high angle, and you see him walking across the room, and they're talking about it. They're talking about Qui-Gon. And, um, and then Linda Bell, I think it was Linda, animated a, a quick shot of him in, in Qui-Gon's funeral, in that room where the fire's burning. There's kind of a pan across, and you see Yoda on one side of the room, and that was also a CG shot. So those are the first two CG shots of Yoda. So between Fan Menace and Clones, and I realize this may this end up being a little controversial for some of your listeners, but Linda and I and maybe Steve Rollins, I forget, we, we were part of a little team under Rob to explore doing Yoda in CG from that point on. Uh, it was George's idea, but we, we were part of a little team. Right. So what we did was we took the, that, that simple version of Yoda that we had, and we animated shots from Empire, basically copied shots from Empire Strikes Back like four or five shots just to see if we could get to get it to feel like the puppet and we had a bunch of discussions about you know how to do the face control should we make them work basically just the way frank oz's hand worked inside the puppet or should we do it more like we're, we've been doing cg characters and we had a whole discussion about his ears because you know with a puppet the, the, the rubbery ears have kind of vibration in them when he moves his head and did we want to mm-hmm. keep that or did we want to not have that and we decided we had to have it or it didn't look like yoda and Anyway, so we did these little tests, and then, um, and then you know, he, he went CG in, in clones. But on clones, interestingly, after having been part of that, I didn't end up animating any other shots in clones. At least I don't think, I don't think so. I had between Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones, I had gotten my 
first opportunity to be an animation supervisor. And it was on a film called AI Artificial Intelligence, a Steven Spielberg film. Yeah, of course. And I think that was still going when Attack of the Clones was starting up. And so then when that finished, then I came on the clones and, and Rob said, hey, can you take on some sequences for me and supervise them? I think that's how that worked. I think that's why not in many, any other shots. But um, so I supervised a sequence that I don't love because it actually it was kind of jammed into the movie late. And, and, I, and so I don't really love it, but I did my best. Um, and it's the droid factory sequence. But what's cool about that and what I enjoyed it, about it was that whole row of machines that Padme has to run through. That was really hard to do, but it was really that was an interesting problem to solve because the the green screen footage of her is crazy. She's on all these tre- treadmills and jumping over all these things. It looked right. like something from that TV show Wipeout, <laughs> except everything was green. And then um, I had this guy Carlos Baena who um, later went to Pixar, and he's a super talented guy. And I remember he was m- my main animator on those machines. But what was cool about it was we decided to make that assembly line actually do something so if you look carefully what's happening is at the very beginning they're just blank glowing red ingots of whatever kind of metal they are and then they get the corners cut off and they get little holes drilled in them and they get stamped and they gradually as they go through each machine by the end of it what they are is the breastplate for the super battle droids they're an actual thing that you know we see in the film and it makes sense for the the um, geonosians to be making yeah so that was fun it was fun to sort of work that out that is so cool and we got to do the Geonosians in that scene, which were fun. They, you know, they fly around, they're kind of bug-like. And so there were cool things to do. It just, the sequence itself is a little, you know, it was added very late in the game. And there's just some things about it. Yeah. A little but, and I didn't, I, I don't love the, the C-3PO um, antics, you know, with the head swap and stuff. Oh. But, you know, it's fine. With the battle you know, droid, yeah. Everybody, yeah. everybody has a different thing about it. Um, for a long time, Clones was my son's favorite Star Wars movie. Um, but that was mainly because of the arena beasts he loved the arena beasts and uh, but anyway so droid factory and then the other thing was the battle outside the arena at the end so with the the droid mm-hmm. army and the clones and the dust storm and the the big uh, federation ships and all that um i worked uh, that i supervised that and i think ben snow was the visual effect supervisor on that sequence so that was my first time working with ben who i worked with later on on the first iron Man. Um, but so that's that, that was wow. my involvement on on clones. So after the after the prequels, and then moving into the rest of your ILM work, you mentioned Iron Man, of course, your Academy Award winning work on Davy Jones. Are there any projects that you are proud of or looking back, kind of then inform, you know, the work you ended up doing on on Rogue One ten years later? Oh yeah, I mean you learn stuff on every show. I, I'd say the big the big highlight shows for me. Certainly the first two pirates, the third one was great. It's just that the third one, the second and third one were shot concurrently. And the third one was largely an extension mm-hmm. of, of the work we'd done on two, which was Davey and his crew uh, and that thing. So that's the only reason I, I sort of leave that off the list. But whereas one had the challenge of, of the skeleton pirates and two had the challenge of Davey and his crew. But so those were, mm-hmm. those were awesome. Um, Iron Man 1 was a great project. John Favreau was a lot of fun to work with. I got to work with Ben again. Um, oh, by the way, the first three Pirates films, I worked with John Knoll on those, and then we've subsequently worked mm-hmm. on a... He's, he's the guy I worked with the most. At ILM, um, you know, a visual effects supervisor is the is the creative leadership for, for a show. And then if there's a significant amount of character animation of some kind or other, uh, there'll be an animation supervisor, which is what I do. And and the two mm-hmm. people kind of partner. The, the visual effects supervisor is always the kind of the top dog, but we the two kind of partner is the creative leadership. And John and I have have uh, partnered up on a whole, whole bunch of projects. So, um, but I'm digressing. <laughs> the first two pirates, uh, Iron Man one, um, Rango was a uh, was one of my favorite projects. Um, Pacific Rim and Rogue One. Those those were are the, were the main highlights. But uh, another film I'll add to that um, because it was a massive learning experience for me, and I really enjoyed working with the director was was Warcraft. And Warcraft was perfectly timed because Warcraft was the first film that I used I, that I worked on where we were using uh, facial capture on you know reasonably realistic humanoids they weren't they were orcs they weren't totally human but i learned a ton on that show and i really enjoyed working with duncan jones um and then and so everything i learned on that show with facial capture helped me when we were doing uh you know tarkin and leia on um, on road yeah so so it really fed in um so those are the projects you know honestly i haven't i've been lucky i haven't had i've worked on some a few films that I didn't think ultimately gelled or turned out that well, but I've never had a bad experience with a director or a crew or 
or a visual effects supervisor or anything. I've, I've been, been really lucky in that regard. And I've learned something from every film that I've worked on. Well, I've learned a lot. Yeah. So, because there, and believe me, there are some, and I won't name names, but there are some directors out there that I don't relish having to work for. <laughs> but so far, I've, I managed to dodge, dodge those bullets. You, you just named a very iconic, really, especially visual effects um, focused um, list of movies, right? And all of those kind of led to then what you just mentioned, the the Rogue One work you did with John Knoll and the rest of the team with both K2SO, but then the Tark and Leia visual effects, which really in terms of the work that ILM has put out over the past decade really stands apart. So with Rogue One, what were some of the initial challenges that y'all felt when you first read the script? And then kind of what were the, the processes to overcome them? You know, John and I talk about this a lot. If you're not kind of scared going into a project, then what's the fun or, or you know, is it worth doing? And you can't always have that. Uh-huh. Some project you go into and it's largely a known quality, a quantity. I mean, it may be hard to do, but you kind of know where you're headed. Um, but with, um, and you would think a Star Wars film would be one of those. Like, well, we know how to do spaceships. We know how to do this. We know how to do that. But um, Tarkin and Leia made it, um, you know, kept us all awake at night, literally. Um, we knew how hard they were going to be. Doing digital humans is hard. It's the hardest thing there is to do in, in visual effects. And doing well-known CG humans is, is a thousand times harder. So we knew that would be the hardest thing. Um, there were other things that didn't seem like they'd be that hard that ended up being really difficult. Um, one of those was the space battle at the end. Now, the space battle didn't end up being technically difficult. It just ended up being difficult because, um, and this happens with lots of big summer visual effects films, there were significant changes to the third act, which everyone knows about. And But because the space battle was interwoven with all the action on the ground and the whole narrative structure of the third act, it became very difficult to both make progress on it, meaningful progress, but not waste time on things that might end up getting thrown away. Um, So it's kind of like a a puzzle. And so it ended up up being easily, for me, the second hardest thing to do on the show after Tarkin and Leia. K2SO ended up not being difficult at all on a technical level. On a creative level, I wouldn't say it was difficult. It was more just really interesting and fun. Actually, he was the, yeah. that was the, the sort of most part of the show just because, you know, Alan was amazing and he, the character, the whole soul of the character came right, you know, just sprang to life as soon as Alan was in the mix. And, and I loved the design of the character. Like, it was just, it all just worked. It was like, that's an awesome voice. It works perfectly with the character. This is going to be great. And, so, um, so that was the one aspect of the show that didn't cause me, me to work, lay awake at night and uh, lose sleep. Well, what I would love to do just very briefly is kind of go through a few of the effect shots that, that stood out to me. And maybe you can explain them very briefly or just kind of maybe a, a challenge or a story behind it. And then we can kind of move through Rogue One. Sure. I would, I would love to talk first about, you know, with the Rogue One being in between three and four, there's a lot of legacy vehicles and a lot of things that people are very used to, like... The AT-ATs, the AT, ACTs. What was the challenge there, especially, to kind of getting that movement right? Because the last time we saw them were, you know, as stop-motion creatures in, in Empire and Return of the Jedi. So I grew up, obviously, revering Phil Tippett, um, you know, as one of our local stop-motion gods, visual effects gods. And, and I've actually gotten to know yeah. Phil a bit in the last uh, 10 years or so. And I, so it was really important to me to get those right. And as an animation soup, I don't get as much opportunity to animate things myself um, as I used to, but at every show, I'll try and peel off one or two things, even if it's just early in the schedule, tests and things like that mm-hmm. to animate myself just to kind of keep my hand in it. And so that I decided that was one thing I was going to do was animate, you know, work out a walk cycle for them and figure it out just to, in order to sort of test out the asset, you know, the, the actual CG version of it and, and how the controls work to make sure the animators would be able to do everything they needed to do with it. But also just because I wanted to do it. I wanted to make that thing move. So I did that. I actually wanted to do that with the ATSD as well, but my super capable and, and talented um, animation soup at our London studio, which was doing all the Jetta scenes, um, Gang Trend, he he jumped on it and I was like all ready to do it. And then one day I got this review request that popped up and it was this great looking walk cycle for the ATSD. I was like, ah, damn it. <laughs> You're like, oh no! 
Yeah, it looked really good. Gosh, but but um, so I did the AC, ATACT, and I had a secret wish. I wanted to um, at some point corner Phil and show it to him and get his feedback, just because I wanted, you know, wanted to do. It. And it just schedule wise, it never worked out. I never got over there to show it to him. But um, but yeah, so you know, obviously getting that right was a big deal. And I, of course, immediately you know snipped out every shot from Empire of the um, at ats and strung them all together in real and studied them and um, and tried to you know do my best to kind of get the right the same feel and and that we slowed ours down a little bit from the pace of the ones in Empire because ours are meant to be a bit taller and a little bit longer legged so we mm-hmm. I just slowed them down a little bit to kind of enhance the sense of scale but other than that I tried to stick with you know like Phil had a rule that you know they only could ever have one foot off the ground at a time and those kinds of mm-hmm. things. I, I stuck with all those rules and studied the way the mechanisms worked in Empire and and, and did all that. And, and Gang did the same thing with the ATSTs. And, you know, sadly, I think we only see them in like three shots in, yeah, in Rogue. But I know Gareth really wanted to have, to feature them a lot more in this kind of, you know, occupied city and to have them more involved in, in kind of a street fight. But, you know, as things happen in every movie, you ultimately you have to kind of trim things down to the, you know, what's really important. And that, that was one thing that, that gave way. But we do get to see him come out and shoot up the town in a few shots, which was cool. Boar Gullet, I know, started as a practical effect. I think Derek Arnold is the one that puppeteered it. Uh, I know it was digitally extended. Maybe you can explain a little bit about what we see on screen, what what is CG, and then what is actual physical puppet it wasn't planned to be but it ended up being a really cool um collaboration between neil scanlon's creature shop and 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 our stuff um originally mm-hmm. Bohr was going to kind of be in the corner of this other cell just looking kind of icky and kind of just slumped in this corner but he had these tendrils that would come out <laughs> and touch the person that was being interrogated and uh and it was an awesome animatronic um just really great looking and that, and it was originally, I think it was Jin that was going to be interrogated. And then that whole part of the movie changed, but Bohr stayed in the film and it ended up being Bodhi who gets interrogated. And they ended up wanting a much grander entrance for, for Bohr. So, you know, they, they had, okay, <laughs> I remember when they came to us, all right, so we have this plate of Bohr, uh, this footage of Bohr um, in this alcove. And we're, we're going to, what we want to do is add that on top of a much bigger body that can, with bigger tentacles that can kind of pull itself forward into the room. We're like, wow, okay. <laughs> like it wasn't a small model, but it ended up being really cool. So there's in the shots where, where Boar is coming forward and you can kind of see its whole body and you can see those big tentacles. I can't remember, there's one or two shots like that. That's a, that's mm-hmm. a blend. The top part where the head, where the eyes are, that's still the, the animatronic and the, and the body down below and the big tentacles are, are CG. And then there are some close-ups like of its eye looking around and that's that's the animatronic. Any close-ups of its mm-hmm. face, if it really has a face, of its eyes are, are the animatronic. Then the tentacles are all us. Uh, so when they're all over Bodhi, we actually had to replace his whole um, torso because the tentacles needed to interact with his shirt. So all that's really real mm-hmm. there is his head and the chair and everything behind him, but but his his upper body and his shirt and all that are, are um, CG. Maybe if his hands are in the shot, those are probably real, but his, his shirt is CG and the tentacles are CG so they can kind of push the cloth around as they slither around him. So that that's how that ended up going. It was just kind of something that needed to change for both for the narrative and just to make it more exciting and and so yeah. being a blend of, of the two things. But the animatronic was really, really brilliant. And that was done, that work was also done at our London shop. Mo and Leo was our um, visual effects supervisor over London, and he supervised all that mm-hmm. stuff. And uh, it looked great. One or two shots, actually, that, that really stood out to me in the movie. I don't know how much involvement you might have had, but the gold leader, red leader cameos in the space battle, I think, were a, a big standout moment in that, in that movie. Yeah, and you know, that didn't involve me, but I love that stuff. In fact, I love the fact that we brought back old characters with pretty much every different way you could do it. So, for instance, we have Dr. Evazan, who comes back, that's a recast, but in makeup, so it looks like Dr. Evazan, which would have to be in makeup anyways. Then we had, so that's a recast. Mm-hmm. Then we had uh, General Dodonna was a recast, but then Jimmy Smith came back and just reprised his character is Bail Organa. And then Genevieve mm-hmm. O'Reilly came back and reprised her role as Mon Mothma. But then, in a sense, that's also a recast 
um, for, I can't think of the actress's name, but the, the one who played her. Carolyn Blankstein, yeah. yeah. In Return of Jedi. So she's both a recast yeah. and a return. Then we had CGI recreations and Tarkin and Leia, and then we had, the, the, and then the last way we, we brought back old characters was to take old footage, outtakes from New Hope with gold and red leaders and, and put them in the film. And then some trickery had to be done there. Of course, first and foremost, the footage had to be cleaned up and degrained and, you know, mm-hmm. things to make it look more modern. But then also, what did we do? Oh, I think it's red leader. I think the problem with red leader is all the footage that was, that was neat from the, the, the day, you know, that had the lines that we needed was underexposed. So there wasn't much detail in the blacks and it kind of looked crunchy that way. So, they could massage it enough to get him looking well, but it was really the background, the, the cockpit, the shadows in the cockpit that really looked odd. So they rotoscoped mm-hmm. him out. In other words, they separated him from the original uh, X-Wing background, and we put our CG X-Wing background uh, behind him. So in the shots of Red Leader, that's mm-hmm. really him from the old footage, but the background, the, the cockpit around him is CG. And the only reason we had a CG X-Wing interior, because we didn't need one for Rogue One, but we did one for a VR experience thing that was connected with Rogue One. And so we used that, put it in there. Anyway, so that was Red Leader. And then Gold Leader, that footage could be used as is. I mean, cleaned up and degraded and all that, but cleaned up. But we also have another um, Y-Wing pilot. Uh, I forget the character's name, but she's she's the squadron leader that, that, that makes the run on the Star Destroyer with ion bombs that zaps it. And on Rogue One, they had not built a practical, a real Y-Wing interior. They'd only built X-Wing interiors. So she had been filmed in an X-Wing, but they decided to make her the Gold Wing or the Gold Squad leader at that point in the film. So uh, we rotoscoped her out of her X-Wing and we put her in the Y-Wing cockpit from the old historical Gold Leader footage. Oh, wow. Um, (laughs) And a bunch of stuff nobody would ever know. Hopefully no one ever noticed. But um, so a bunch of of weird swapping around of cockpits and stuff there, but I think those were. I mean, I know every pretty much every time I saw the movie when it was in theaters, um, the red leader, gold leader cameos got a huge response from the audience every time. So uh. we talked to uh, we talked to Gary Whitta who helped write the the movie, yeah. and and I told him I was like that that was literally like the the most like tangible moment i've had in a movie where i just was like a guttural like oh my goodness they there they are and so yeah that really yeah that was a a big deal for me yeah uh so we've mentioned it we've kind of touched on it but i'd love to kind of dive pretty deep into both the leia and tarkin recreations for this movie tarkin especially i was watching rogue one a couple nights ago and it still just blows me away every time because i love the first scene you see tarkin in it's just the reflection on the window and i remember thinking when i was watching it for the first time i was like oh they're just going to show that that's fine that was cool and then you immediately go into it's like no it's full face it's full torso it's full everything so maybe especially tarkin maybe going through the process of you know guy henry and then going into the, the facial reconstruction and that was, and by the way, that was exactly the purpose of the design of that shot. That's exactly what Gareth wanted. He wanted people to sit there and go, oh, okay, we're just going to see him in a reflection because, you know, whatever, and then have him turn around. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's super hard to do. The, the, the process we elected to do was to, um, you know, have an actor play Tarkin on set in the uniform and do head replacement. So that was our plan. And so, uh, you know, job one was to find an actor that had the right bearing and could do kind of a version we weren't looking i think everyone decided early on that it, would, it was going to be tough to find somebody who could do a an impersonation of peter cushing we just wanted somebody who could do that kind of british accent and the, with the right tonality and the, and physically with the right bearing because again the point was to keep the actor's body and just replace the head and so guy henry was a great choice guy even has in, in a way a kind of he doesn't look like Peter Cushing, but he looks like he's maybe from the famous, uh, the same family of man. You know, he has kind of high yeah. cheekbones and things. Um, but most of all, he's he had the right bearing, and he could he could kind of do that. So that was that was the first thing. Um, and then, of course, at the same time, we had to be we had to start building our CG Tarkin. Fortunately, we had gotten a hold of uh, John had gotten a hold of a uh, John Noel of a um, life cast of Peter Cushing that had been made mm. only maybe five years after, after four or five years after New Hope um, for the film Top Secret because mm-hmm. um, they did a prosthetic makeup on him in that film for a, for a gag in that film. 
And so we had this mm-hmm. live casting. And so that was a decent place to start. But the problem with live castings is that often the weight of the, the alginate, the material that they put on the actor's face to make the casting can kind of pull on the skin and deform it a little bit in, in subtle ways that you have to correct away from. But still, it was a really good starting point. And we had that. And of course, we had all the footage in New Hope, plus all the outtakes from New Hope. And we had photographs and footage of him from other movies and that kind of thing. So, um, so we got to, mm-hmm. to, to work building a CG version of him. Now, at the same time, we also needed a CG version of Guy Henry. Um, and the reason for that, because you're never going to see a CG version of Guy Henry on screen, but the reason we needed that is because when we uh, record his facial performance, we don't then want to immediately apply it to the, the CG character, in this case, Tarkin. Because if there are any problems with it, you won't know if the problems are simply the result of this actor's facial performance on on this other person's face, or if you, there's actually something broken in the process. So the first step we do once we've recorded the facial performance is to put it on a CG version of that same actor. So it's an apples to apples comparison and we can see if we've really captured it correctly and, and, and preserved guy's mm-hmm. performance. So in order to do that, we go through this whole scanning thing that's called Medusa. It's, it's, um, it's some technology that Disney research in Zurich, Disney has all research lab in, in Zurich that does really cool technology stuff. And this is something they did that, that benefits us actually. We use it all the time. So this thing called Medusa and you sit the actor in a chair and there are lights around them and cameras all around them and, and you can you capture both the form of them, you know, that essentially sort of like um, you know, like laser scan or something. Um, it's not lasers, but you know, similar kind of thing. Um, but you also capture all the textures. So you get a really high resolution mm-hmm. model of, of the actor and really great texture. So we use that to create our Guy Henry model. And there are some other things we do to it that, that get kind of deep and crazy that have to do with capturing all their expressions and things like that. Um, but the main thing is to get a, a really accurate model of Guy Henry. So we do that. And then, you know, pretty soon we're ready to start shooting. In this case, we were using the process that is, is still pretty common, um, although we're working on systems. But um, it's the kind of thing people would have seen in the behind the scenes for Avatar or the, those Planet of the Apes films, for instance, where the actors all have helmets and, and hooked onto the helmets are these little cameras that are pointed back at the actors' faces to capture their facial performance. And their face has a bunch of dots on it that we put on with makeup. And that's how you capture the facial performance. So when we're shooting the scenes, let's say it's a scene between Tarkin and Krennic. Ben Mendelsohn is there as, as Krennic. And then there's Guy Henry in uniform, in the boots and everything. But on his head, he's got this camera and he's got the dots on his face. And I mean, on his head, he has a helmet with the cameras attached to it. And then on his, dot, on his face, he's got the dots. And the little cameras record the motion of those dots, right? And so that's how the scenes are, are filmed. And then later, the idea is to paint out Guy's head and the helmet cam and everything and replace it with our CG Tarkin head, which has now had that dot motion applied to it so that it moves in the same way. Um, so that's sort of the, the basic process. Now, the, the problem with it is you know you, you shoot the scenes you record all that you track all those dots on guy henry's face and that becomes data and you apply it to the cg version of guy henry and you check it and you go great that looks awesome on guy that looks like guy you know our cg guy is moving exactly like the real guy great we did a good job now we'll take that data and put it on our cg tarkin the problem is unsurprisingly <laughs> no two people use their face in the same way so guy doesn't smile like Peter Cushing did and he doesn't form phonemes like Peter Cushing did and so when you apply the motion from Guy Henry's face to the Tarkin the Peter Cushing Tarkin CG model the motion looks realistic looks like a person really talking but it stops looking like Peter Cushing or Tarkin because it's not smiling right it's not forming phonemes right it's not doing any of those things right doesn't doesn't look right so then you have to decide how much to modify the motion of the of this actor's face after the fact, the CG face of Tarkin. How much to modify that to get it looking like Tarkin? If you monkey around with it too much, it starts to feel kind of Frankenstein or weird or animated or something. It's very easy to break it. If you don't modify it enough, it doesn't look enough like Tarkin, like the, the specific person you're making. It, it looks real, but it doesn't look enough. But it doesn't look really like that particular guy, like Peter Cush. And that was the huge challenge with this. It really was. That was the biggest challenge. Everything was hard. Like with CG humans, 
getting the model right is hard, getting the textures right is hard, getting the lighting right when you're rendering is hard, it's all hard, um, and then moving it is hard, but getting the likeness and the realism both right is hard, and they and sometimes they fight against each other, which seems counterintuitive. You, right. It would all be one thing, getting it to look realistic and getting it to look like Peter Cushing, but in fact, for the reason I just stated with emotion, and this also happens with lighting, if you if you monkey with it too much to get the likeness correct, then the motion can start to feel odd and less realistic. Whereas if you didn't mess with it at all, the motion would look super realistic. It just wouldn't look like the specific human you're trying to make it look right. Right. It's um it's tricky. Every scene with Tarkin meant something even more just because you knew what it took to to put that on the screen. And plus plus we got to see his boots for the first time, so it's kind of a win win all around. <laughs> we thought about putting him in his socks. Yeah, because he famously thought the boots were uncomfortable, and so he wanted to shoot all his scenes in his socks um, where you, when you couldn't see his feet. So <laughs> we joked about it. Of course, we weren't we weren't going to do it. I would love it. An alternate <laughs> cut, right? I demand the alternate cut of Rogue One with just Peter Cushing wearing slippers, right? That's it. Yeah, his slippers. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so with with Princess Leia, her scene was much more brief than you know, the Tarkin scenes, but what were the challenges there that might have been different between the two characters? Yeah, her one shot, because uh, in the first shot where she starts to turn around, we never see her face, so that's just, that's Ingvild in the robe, and that's there's no CG there. So the second shot where she turns around and she says the line, um, that shot was easily harder than any 10 Tarkin shots. Um, it was really? super hard. Um, part of that is because of the pressure of, where that shot lands in the cut and expectations and all that. Partly because there's something about, I think, an older person's face, particularly, you know, you kind of have this architecture to work from, you know, the high cheekbones and the kind of gaunt expression and wrinkles and things that really, I'm not, they're not easy to reproduce, but, but somehow they turn out to be easier to get a good result than someone with a super flawless face like Carrie Fisher at, what, 18 or 19, however old she was when she mm-hmm. shot New Hope. I mean, her face is almost, there are almost no blemishes. It's like perfect. And so that, curiously, was harder to do, um, particularly when she started moving it. Um, then on top of that, there was, because there was a lot more pressure and attention on that shot, there was a lot, there were a lot more opinions in the mix. And, 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 and I think that made it more difficult for us, honestly, because there were a lot of, there was a lot of discussion about how to play, when she says hope, Ingvold's performance was a little smilier and more optimistic. And there was a lot of concern that, you know, hey, we just seen all these other people die <laughs> to get these plans here. <laughs> yeah. Be heavy stuff. She shouldn't look too happy. I mean, you know, it's good news, but hey, this is, you know, sort of pretty heavy ending to this, this movie. And so we there's a lot of discussion about that. And 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 that discussion led to a lot of I think fussing with that shot that in retrospect I think it's possible that there were earlier versions that felt, to my eye, a little more natural. But, you know, certain people in the room maybe felt like it wasn't hitting quite the right acting note. And so we had to, that was, for me, that was, aside from the challenge of, of her face just being really difficult because it's so, it was so perfect, I think the struggle to hit exactly the right note um, made the process more difficult. And it wasn't... Everybody was acting in good faith. You know, it's not like, I wouldn't even say it was like, oh, too many cooks in the room. I think we had exactly the right cooks in the room. The, the problem was it was just mm-hmm. a very difficult thing to solve and get right. Um, the other thing that was tricky about it is if you look at nearly all the shots of Leia from New Hope, and really the ones we were focusing on for reference were the ones in the corridor at the beginning of the movie on the Rebel cruiser, mm-hmm. because... Those are the ones that are most relevant in terms of lighting reference and her hairstyle and everything else because those buns would kind of change from scene to scene. And, you know, so we really, really wanted to match that scene. And, and most, nearly all those shots are from a kind of a, you know, we're kind of higher than her looking down at her because a lot of them are, she's talking to Vader or whatever. So our shot was a little lower than her and looking up. And that also had a curious effect, you know, in terms of, you know, when you're micromanaging someone's likeness and trying to figure out like, is her nose too big? Is her chin too pointy? Is her forehead too high? Is her, her ear, is something about her ears? You know, you're like looking at all these things. It didn't help us that the angle we were at was an angle that we had no good reference of. 
Um, and we did try, you know, we would put a camera up a little higher to look at her just as sort of like a working viewpoint to say, well, all right, fine, let's frame it like one of these shots from 1977 and see where we're at. And that did help. But that was just another one of many challenges. I, I think with this kind of work, for me, the very hardest thing about it is that you, okay, you have a lot of opinions, We've got a lot of people in the room, like we had, you know, I think the best people we have at our whole company for doing digital humans on working on both Tarkin and Leia. And if you could come out of every review with everybody agreeing on exactly what to do next, that'd be awesome. But that was rarely the case. You you go into dailies and, and like I said, somebody would go, you know what it is, I think her forehead's too high. And somebody else say, no, 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 forehead's fine. Her nose is too pointy, you know, and then somebody else say, no, no, no. The noses are fine. <laughs> you know, the problem is actually with the texture. She's too pale. And, you know, you just go around and around like that. And not to say there were never, there was never a consensus on certain things. There certainly was. But you, the, you, we get so many different opinions that you'd start to question your own gut on things. And that's when you, you could get kind of lost. And I've, I've given some, some talks about some of the work we did on Rogue. And one of the things I point out is, you know, I, I put up two still images of, of Krennic, of Ben Mendelsohn. One is from the scene at the beginning of the movie where he finds Galen Erso in his hideout on this farming planet. And it's outdoors. It's cool, you know, outdoor lighting, kind of foggy, top lit. And then in another frame of him where his head's at a similar angle to camera, but where he's on, it's one of the Death Star interiors. And it's very warm lighting, and he's almost underlit. It's like super different lighting. Mm. And I say, look, if this was a CG character and you did that scene first, that outdoor scene first, and then later you were doing this indoor scene, you'd be killing yourself trying to figure out what you'd done wrong and why the character looks so different. Like, God, his nose looks fatter, and it looks, you know, it doesn't look at anything like Mendelssohn. <laughs> what, are we, what, what is wrong? And you'd be looking at the model, and you'd be looking at... But the fact is, there's nothing wrong. That's just what Ben looks like in that lighting versus the other lighting. So with Tarkin, our version of that was that all the footage we had of Tarkin that was really um, relevant was from New Hope. And in New Hope, it was very 70s style lighting with very hard key light, harsh shadows, um, very different lighting from Rogue One, which is very ambient, soft, uh, modern lighting. And so, you know, for that first scene we did with, with, him, with him confronting Krennic, we'd gotten to, to this sort of one of the big shots we decided to start with where he's approaching Krennic and talking to him. Um, and we'd gotten to a point where we were like, wow, it looks real. But we're just not sure it looks like enough like Tarkin. You know, it looks maybe kind of like Tarkin's cousin. And so finally, we hit on the idea of, all right, look, let's just, as a test, let's light this. Let's disregard what the lighting in the background plate is in the footage. And let's light it like one of these pieces of reference we have from New Hope. You know, put the key light in the same place and do all this stuff. And bam, I mean, it looked like Tarkin. So then we knew, we were like, okay, our model is fine. Textures are fine. Our animation is fine. Or, you know, facial capture plus animation changes. The fact is, this is what Peter Cushing would look like if you had put him on this set with this lighting. And that's the stuff you can drive yourself crazy with if you don't do some tests like that to, to figure it out. Um, because you just think, well, we've done something wrong. It doesn't look like him. It's broken. Um, it's like a whole rabbit hole you can go down. And there are any number of variables in this that, that, that can give you <laughs> problems like that. Anyway, so that's just a peek at the <laughs> insanity of, <laughs> of doing that. You know, my worst nightmare now is for them to come to me and say, Okay, we've got a new project, and it's the whole movie is, you know, it's a young, you know, whoever, some name of famous actor, you know, it's a young version of them, and yeah. like 600 shots of them, I'd just be like, you know, put a gun to my head, because Tarkin was only like 40, <laughs> and it was super hard, but it's interesting, it's an interesting challenge. I, I actually, you know, it is a film I'm, I'm super proud of. I'm, I'm proud because, you know, John Knoll um, conceived the story, and that really tickles me that one of our own, you know, thought the story up, and the film got greenlit, and then... Just getting to work with John again on a Star Wars film was was awesome, and I really I love the movie. I like working with Gareth a ton, um, and I and I just really like the finished film. So I mean, you, you said earlier, like sorry for that digression about John Knoll, but any digression about John Knoll is, is more than welcome on this show. I, I assure you. <laughs> I, I guess that's an interesting question, right? So you've worked with uh, Mr. Knoll in the past, uh, and then with Rogue One specifically, you know, it was his initial story, right? Destroyer of Worlds, his initial treatment, it's kind of almost like a, a different kind of project for him. So what was that kind of like, bouncing ideas off each other or working together on a project that was, at the very start, his initial idea? I don't know, it was just super exciting. I mean, you know, as, as often yeah. happens, I think I think the project took on new dimensions when um, screenwriters were brought in, like, you know, Gary and, and, and some of the others that came on board. And, you know, things that I 
think John didn't necessarily envision. I think his original idea was it was really kind of just a heist film in, in Star Wars style. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it got some some great shadings about, you know, kind of moral ambiguity and, and things that, that Gareth and, and Gary and, and a bunch of the other people who came on over, over time brought to it. Um, and it. And it transformed a bit. But I just, I really enjoyed, you know, John's enthusiasm for the project was always at a maximum peak because it was his baby. And and um and so it was just great and he had he and i had already worked together on the first three pirates films and rango and pacific rim um so mm-hmm. you know we're we have a shorthand we we get along great um john lets me do my thing to an extent that is probably sometimes crazy <laughs> i mean he he definitely will will ping me and say hey and you know something in this shot doesn't you know the motion of this thing doesn't quite feel right but he doesn't, you know, generally speaking, he kind of lets me have my little animation kingdom and, and go for it. And uh-huh. that's awesome because he trusts me. And, and, um, and I, you know, I completely, there's no visual effects if I'd rather work, work with than John. So, so um, he's great. He's got, he's kind of got the whole package. You know, he's a very technical person, um, you know, yeah. very science minded guy, but he's also just uh, super creative and he has a great eye. I mean, John can paint. He takes yeah photographs he's he can write i mean he's, he invented photoshop you know like yeah he, he his brother thomas invented photoshop so he's you know he's kind of got it all and and he's just the nicest guy in the world too so um but you know i think one of the things i like about john is that when a project is really big and scary as as many of them are at the outset john is really really good at methodically breaking down big problems into smaller problems uh in a really logical way to the point where it suddenly seems doable and everybody feels better <laughs> everyone stops sort of wringing their hands and, and looking scared and kind of goes okay yep that makes sense we have a plan let's let's do it and uh, he's just he's better than anybody else i know at doing that um it really is well so if the people at lucasfilm came to you and they said okay we got john Knowles' star wars movie made what would your like what what was this the letter that you wrote what was the story that you wanted to tell and what story would you want to tell now uh, no, it wouldn't be that. I think it was terrible. It was probably because if you remember at that time, we all thought we didn't know that Luke and Leia were sisters. So I'm sure the premise was, you know, they're there now. They have kids now and they're off, you know, whatever. It was some it was it was a 13 and 14 year old kids idea of what Star Wars should be. Um, if I were making Star Wars, I I mean, I don't I don't have like a spec script of my own lying around. There, there is a Star Wars film. It's not mine. There is a Star Wars film that I dearly want to get made, and I, I really can't say any more about it. But it's, um, it's a, it's a project that I, that exists in some form. Uh, whether it ever get made, I don't know. Um, but, but I'll just. That's all I can really say is that there is a, there is a Star Wars project that I think is awesome, and I, it would be a dream to work on. But I really don't know if, if it'll ever happen or not. Um, but you know what? I, I, I love Star Wars, period. So I'll, I'll see every. Yeah. I, you know, I'd be happy to work on any Star Wars film, and I'll go see every Star Wars film. I had, t- I had almost nothing to do with Last Jedi. I animated a handful of shots just because it was some idle time for me, and they said, "Hey, can mm-hmm. you come on and animate some shots?" And then on Solo, uh, I supervised one sequence, the um, the train heist. But that was Man- Matt Shumway's. Which Matt Shumway was anim soup on that show. He did an awesome job. Matt's mm-hmm. a great guy. He's my office roommate right now. Um, <laughs> uh, so I did, um, and so I was super happy to work on that. I love Solo. I liked how it turned out. Um, so I'm always happy to to do whatever on on any source. But I don't. But to, to really answer your question, I don't have a like a burning. Like I haven't been feverishly writing an outline that I'm this close to pitching to Kathy. You know, for, for yeah. my own Star Wars. <laughs> Although I, I well, you never know. I suspect John has more Star Wars movies than him. I, I oh. have a feeling. He has to. I think because I think that initial pitch was for the the live action TV show, and I think it kind of evolved from there. So right, right. I'm sure there's a few more somewhere. Uh, well, cool. Are there any projects you're working on right now that you can talk about that you're excited uh, that you're working on, or is it all kind of hush hush still? I can't. I can't talk about what I'm currently working on, unfortunately. Um, but it's fun. <laughs> it's fun. All right. Uh, see, but it is Look at all, these are little teases. That's all I need. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> So I'm, I, I, yeah, I'm, I can't, I'm unable to reveal, um, but, um, uh, but yeah, it should be, it should be good. Um, and I'm sure we'll be talking 
talking about it in the future. <laughs> I can't. I can't wait. Yeah, we'll have to. We'll bring you back on when that's finally announced, and we can we can go through those shots. I'm sure. Uh, well, Mr. Hickle, thank you so much for, for taking the time and, and talking to us. This was a, a huge treat for me to kind of pick your brain a little bit and, and hear these stories. And so I really appreciate it. That no, was super fun. Uh, great questions. I had a good time. Thank you so much again to Mr. Hickle for the deep dive into some of my favorite moments of the saga. I will never get tired of hearing stories about CGI Tarkin. Definitely go follow him at twitter.com slash halhickle. And until next week, stay tuned, leave a five-star review, and may the force be with you.